So I hope you had a lovely lunch. And um, this is a, a package of incense that was bought by someone who bought children's books and you're out there somewhere but forgot and paid for the children's books and forgot to take the incense. Whose incense is this? Very nice sandalwood incense. Anyway, if it occurs to you that So we'll sit for just a little bit. Um, the best instruction I think I've ever had for sitting meditation, um, I mentioned parenthetically in our sitting this morning, because it doesn't specifically mention resting in your breath or resting in sound or resting in the uh, sensations of your body, although, of course, they're probably all going to be part of your experience. My friend Ajahn Amaro said, likes to say, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. That's half of the instruction. I love that because it so reminds me, and I hope other people, that we are not constructing something that isn't actually part of our own neurological, psychological, bodily endowment. We just are taking away the obstacles to connecting with it. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body, and let it stay that way, he says. And then he says, only notice whatever arises to disturb that natural peace and ease. So here we are with breath, with the vitality of the body, with sounds coming and going, with the awareness that the breath goes from perhaps a little quicker to a little slower. Rest in the natural peace and ease. We'll rest for about five minutes and prepare ourselves for learning the rest of the afternoon.
Okay, this afternoon I'm going to talk about interpretation, which I think of as a, a synthesis of practice. But before I talk about that, I wanted to mention that um, one of the ways that studying the cello has always reminded me of learning the Dharma is the way that students find mentors. Music students will often study with the same teacher for many years, trying to learn their particular method. I know it's a common practice in Buddhist circles to find a teacher who really speaks to you. With Cliff, for instance, when he attended Joseph Goldstein's first class at the Naropa Institute in 1974, he knew right away that he had found a very important teacher in his life. Here at Spirit Rock, we have a wonderful selection of excellent teachers to choose from. And each of us has our special favorites. We take their classes and we try to attend the retreats, retreats that they're going to be leading. Now, as music students, we look for a teacher whose approach especially resonates with us, our concept of sound and our way of expression. <coughs> Often when professional musicians meet for the first time, their first question is, who did you study with? Not, what group do you play with or where did you go to school? It's a big part of our personal definition as a player. Often, our main teacher is our primary musical relationship. And as we grow and become professionals, and then teachers ourselves, we want to continue the lineage of that particular approach. Now, while some musicians do align themselves with one teacher and follow that particular method of playing and musical principles their entire musical lives, there's also a different way of learning. And I think this is true in learning about Buddhism and probably many other disciplines as well. I studied at the Juilliard School for six years, four years as an undergraduate earning my Bachelor of Music degree, then one year earning my Master of Music degree, and an additional year of professional studies where I just took private lessons and chamber music classes. Throughout those six years, I studied with one cello teacher. His name was Harvey Shapiro. I was also very lucky to have some other fantastic musical mentors, such as the violinist Robert Mann, in chamber music, who was a member of the Juilliard String Quartet, and a wonderful harpsichordist, Albert Fuller, who was a mentor in Baroque music. However, when I left Juilliard, I didn't feel that my training was by any means complete, and I knew instinctively that I needed to study with some different cello teachers, because although I had spent six years with Harvey Shapiro, his approach just didn't feel organic to me. I felt tight in my playing, and like I wasn't able to find my own expression in what felt like a really natural way. So I decided to branch out and look for other teachers. I was living in New York at the time, the center of classical music performing and teaching, and I found over the next 10 or so years more than a dozen different teachers from whom I took many lessons. Some were cellists, but also some violinists and even a double bass player. So I carry with me an assimilation of all of these different approaches, adding to my playing what worked for me and subtracting what didn't feel useful. And all of that changes over time. Now when I teach, I try to find out what will help a student succeed in his or her own particular approach rather than just telling them, do it my way. As a professional musician also, I try to keep assimilating all the musical ideas that speak to me, just as I did with cello teachers after I left Juilliard. As a member of the San Francisco Symphony for the past 20 years, I've learned from working with many of the greatest soloists and conductors in the world. And I find that after listening to a particular string player who plays with the symphony, who has a really great sound like Yo-Yo Ma, Rostropovich, or Itzhak Perlman, 
My own sound changes, and my interpretation expands. Now, what do I mean by interpretation? When I play the cello, I'm not composing. I don't write my own music nor improvise on what a composer such as Bach has written. Similar to the way a classically trained actor interprets Shakespeare, like we were talking about earlier, or another great playwright, I study the music of Bach and use my knowledge and understanding to try to bring out what the great pianist Vladimir Horowitz called the meaning underneath the notes. Through my artistry, I try to cultivate the ability to communicate the emotion of the music. And this comes from an integration of my awareness of the physical act of playing the cello, so that ideally, I have the freedom to not think about playing the cello and can focus on what the composer says to me in the language of his music. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the composer that I'm playing today, Johann Sebastian Bach, and some of the things I think about when I'm interpreting one of the movements of his suites. So Bach, even people who have never heard classical music and know very little about it, generally have heard the name of Bach. He was definitely the most well-known composer of the Baroque era, which lasted roughly 100 years from 1650 to 1750. Now Bach was a working musician his entire life. He often had a lot of different jobs all at the same time. He worked at the courts, he worked in churches in various cities in Germany, and he was an incredibly prolific composer. He wrote countless pieces for keyboard, for choirs, solo voices. He wrote cantatas, masses, motets. Sometimes at some churches he had to come up with a completely new cantata every Sunday for the service. He also wrote works for orchestras, for solo instruments, concertos, and all variety of instrumental and vocal ensembles. Now the six cello suites were written a little before and then during the 1720s. And then, as I said before, they disappeared from the musical world for almost 150 years after Bach's death in 1750, until Casals discovered them in Barcelona in a music store. Now Casals found so much depth and musical interest in the suites that he played them, he says, every single day for most of his 94 years, always discovering something new in them. Now eventually, through Casals' growing popularity and performances throughout the world, many other cellists began taking up the suites and performing and recording them. And today, you could even say they've gained a kind of mass appeal. There are over 30 recordings. I even have a, a Bach on my iPhone as my, as my ring. So if we hear any Bach in the distance, I hope it's not mine. Um, so there are so many recordings by cellists, but also transcriptions of the suites for flute, piano, guitar, banjo, tuba, saxophone, marimba. You can see them all over YouTube. The suites are played at all different occasions. You may recall that uh, prelude that I started the day with, if that sounded familiar, it was played on the American Express commercials around holiday shopping time. If you remember those commercials that had the smiley faces in all different locations around the world while they were playing the first Bach prelude in the background. They're played at all different occasions of great importance, the fall of the Berlin Wall. There was a cellist playing the Bach suites out there. And at times of great mourning and sorrow for the victims of 9-11. And Yo-Yo Ma played Bach suites at the funerals of Edward Kennedy and most recently Steve Jobs. So the suites have their roots in dance movements of the Baroque era, but they've also been choreographed by Baryshnikov, 
Mark Morris, and Nureyev. Yo-Yo Ma made six short films combining each suite with gardening, architecture, and figure skating. And also Sting made a film where he plays the first prelude on guitar while an Italian ballerina dances around behind him. These suites have been the music that was chosen for discs as varied as Bach for Babies, Bach for Barbecue, and Cliff's favorite, Tune Your Brain on Bach. So in discovering my own interpretations of the suites, I consider many things that help me make informed choices about how I want to play them. I look at the harmonic intentions of the composer, which is the ebbing and flowing of consonants and dissonance that lead in a particular way from the beginning of the movement to the end. I think of how the dances were performed in Bach's day, how the Baroque bow was made, which is somewhat different from my bow, and how that particular bow made its articulation and sound. I think and listen to the resonance of gut strings, which were used at the time, and the musical conventions of the different rhythmical figures that Bach wrote. All of this is in the service of conveying the mysterious vitality of the spirit of life that is so present in this music. Now, Casals often likened Bach to Shakespeare when he was teaching, and he said, these suites have an uncanny sense of inevitability in the expression of something <laughs> essential. When interpreting the themes, we cannot separate the spirit from the form. We must experience them organically. When we re-encounter a work of Bach, as when we reread Hamlet or King Lear, our perception of its meaning may be subject to change. But there is always a concept present, a distinctive commitment of insight and feeling. The next movement I'm going to play is one of the dance movements. It's called Courant. But before I play it, I'll spend a little bit of time talking about how I arrive at some aspects of my interpretation. I don't really have time to deconstruct all of the pieces, but I'll give you a few examples of my process in this Courant. So the first thing I think about is, well, the title is courant, but what does that mean? Courant is a French word, and it comes from the verb to courir, which means to run in French. So a courant in Baroque music traditionally had a lot of fast running notes going up and down the scale. Now Bach makes use of this running note device, but he does it in a unique way. And instead of simply having a lot of continuous running notes, he alternates the running idea with a more relaxed, slower rhythmical figure, kind of like taking a deep breath or a sigh in between moments of running forward. So this movement, the courant, it starts with the relaxed idea. And this is the relaxed figure. It's three notes with an accent on the first. And then a kind of a coming away from the second and third notes. So he uses this figure many times. The first measure has this. The next measure starts. And the third measure starts. And then the fourth measure. You'll hear many times throughout the movement that little three-note figure. And in addition to uh, repeating it many times, he has another way of showing us that it's a very important idea for him. He starts the movement with a pickup that leads strongly into the three-note figure, like this. And other times, when he, wants, he always leads you into the three notes. And another pickup. 
and then another one. So you can see that the three note motive is uh, a kind of falling away or a little bit of a restful thump, bump, bump, taking a little breath or a little hop. And then as for the running notes, they, f they come in a variety of guises. Now instead of just going up and down the scale like some Korans, like Bach, rather than just going up and down, he um, interjects some repeated notes as if some of the notes are trying to run away and some of the others are holding it back, like. And then other times he has some of the notes holding you back uh, by repeating an open string and the other notes rising higher and higher as if they're trying to climb up. So some notes are rising higher and the others are pulling them back to earth. Very similar to at the end of the first prelude when um, there's a chromatic line rising up on the A string and your, the D string keeps repeating itself. That passage that I showed you that had the very difficult coordination that went. So one note is climbing higher and higher and the other is trying to pull you back. So why is Bach doing this? Well, it creates in the listener a feeling of anticipation, probably on a very unconscious level. Anticipation, hopefulness, when will we get to the top? Or is it anxiety? Maybe we'll never get to the top. So when I'm looking at this music, I think about what, what Bach is saying to me in this music, in addition to the harmonic aspects of why I think he's building and building and where I think he's going with that. So for me, when I play those passages of the running notes, even though there's some brief moments of confusion, I feel there's a sense of inevitability that yes, we will definitely make it to the final note at the top. So in playing this piece, I try to bring out the higher level inspiration that I feel is underlying the music, which is Bach's exuberant striving, failing, rushing, relaxing, hoping, breathing life into this joyful 18th century dance. So here's the courant in its entirety.
I wonder if everybody, uh, or I wonder, we'll talk to each other in a minute, so you won't have to wonder about how did everybody else feel. I felt like I was running at the end, you know. And you have to, you're breathing hard when I'm not doing anything. You're working, and I'm sitting here very quietly when I'm breathing hard. <laughs> so, uh, thank you, by the way. Um, for both uh, for both the playing and the teaching, and uh, just to reprise, well, we're going to talk to each other in a minute. But one of the things that I thought about as you were teaching is, uh, or seemed important to me, is uh, studying for a long time with one teacher and really developing a certain amount of master mastership, and then being with other teachers, even teachers with other instruments. Uh, and I was thinking, particularly <clears throat> particularly in the Theravada tradition, in the, in, in the tradition in which we're practicing here, uh, people don't normally say, I have a teacher. They normally think of the Buddha as their teacher. And within that uh, uh, broad, the Buddha is my teacher, say, well, yes, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Anna Douglas, Sylvia Boorstein, uh, whoever, what particular person we've spent time with. But um, it was tremendously helpful for me in all my years of practicing meditation and going on retreats to be with different people who um, had different technical things to say. They said, you do that? Why do you do that? Uh, I'd learned, as I mentioned this morning, we teach, uh, uh, we often teach as a collective here, uh, the technique of naming our experience. The Buddha didn't say, name your experience. It's actually a latter-day um, Burmese teacher, Namahasi Sayadaw, who said, name your experience. Uh, I spent several years practicing diligently and went on retreat uh, with a, a teacher we can do this without the names. Went on retreat with another teacher one day, uh, who I, with whom I had not studied before, and I had my first interview, and this teacher said to me, what are you doing? And I said, da-da-da, and I'm resting my attention in this and that, and I'm naming every moment of my experience, because I thought that was good. Uh, and that particular teacher said to me, why are you doing that? <laughs> and I said, well, everybody told me to do that. They said, don't do that. That's <laughs> That's a bad idea that stands in the way of your really experiencing the experience firsthand. So it's actually quite hard for me uh, because I'm, I'm tremendously, uh, I, this is, I, I can say this because I don't think anything is something that I did because of my background and because of my family and because of the way I, was take, I learned to respect what teachers said. I always did what they said, no matter what they said, I did it. <laughs> So I went off for my next walking meditation, and I was so really uh, 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 connected to lifting, moving, feeling, almost placing, placing. The idea that I would do that without a mental uh, verbal equivalent was like taking the training wheels off the bicycle. In. But it was very good, because you take the training wheels off the bicycle, you really internalize the balance instead of out, so it was great. And over the course of all my practice, I thought I really listened to what everybody said. And nobody said, 
in, in the end, it's nothing that anybody says, because from the very first day, people say all the things, everything is impermanent, suffering is the tension that uh, arises in the mind when it's unable to accommodate its, the truth of its experience, and uh, it's a lawful cosmos, everything causes something and is the effect of something. Everything is an interacting uh, network of causes and effects. You say that the first day, but to experience it firsthand, you need to have all these techniques. So nobody can give you a firsthand experience, but it's like tuning your instrument a little bit. Tune it this way, tune it that way, tune, 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 tune. And all of a sudden you're out walking one day and you realize that there's no one taking the walk. And that it's just one experience and then another, and one experience and then another. When you play, even you look at the music or you know it in your mind, you're not thinking about it note by note, it's playing out of your body. And in a sense, no one's playing. Playing is happening. I, mean, I think no, that's true. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that, because to a certain degree, playing is happening. There's a certain intentionality. I mean, it's not accidentally that you're sitting here with the cello. But, um, But I thought about, in the end, it's the sum of everything that you've heard and learned and practiced that comes through you at any time and manifests as the, the, what's the creation of that moment. And I was thinking, that's a really... Uh, uh, it's, it's been very helpful for me on many different levels. Uh, when I do something and it's good, or particularly good, I think to myself, well, I, it's, you know, I'm glad that it was, but that wasn't me. That was all of my teachers ever. That my, uh, my, my, uh, my committee of uh, teachers on this side or any other side or wherever they are has has bit, showed up today. And when it's not that, and it's something else, they didn't show up for whatever reason. And. So I don't have to feel anything but glad for committees and glad for life. But uh, anyway, those are the kinds of things that I thought about, not so much during the time that Barbara was playing, but one that she was teaching before and saying those concepts. So I imagine you were thinking about things and had some <coughs> questions. And we planned, because we have almost 200 people here, and we can't have 200 individual people stand up and tell everybody else what they were thinking about. We thought we'd take the next several minutes for you in a group of you and two other people. Ready, set, go. Hold hands with two other people. Ready, set, go. Ready, set, go. Near people, so it's not a big project, okay? You don't even know what to do yet. Wait. <laughs> How can you be doing it if I didn't tell you? <laughs> oh, I gave you a hint. I gave you a hint. I said you and two other people are going to talk about pursuant to listening, pursuant to being here, pursuant to Barbara's playing and teaching and Cliff's teaching, and every single thing that happened so far 
What are you thinking about? What is, what's very important for you? Just what do you want to say to these other people? Oh my, I'm so glad I'm here because... Da-da-da. Okay, now you have the instructions. <laughs> so wait, 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 you don't have the whole instruction. Everybody has um, th about three minutes. So ten minutes from now, I'll ding again, and I'll say, okay, talk fast. So... <laughs> Have in mind that everybody can hold forth, but not too forth.
So maybe finish up your sentence or your thought or your paragraph. There you go. That's your thought or your paragraph that you're finishing up in your mind. So here's an idea. First of all, remember who your newly found friends are. Uh, that you were in the middle of a sentence with because uh, in a little while you'll get a chance to pick up in the middle of what end of a sentence you are and continue it on a little bit. And uh, in the meanwhile, Cliff is going to teach again. And here's a really instant piece of help. If you want to, if your head is full of all of everybody's ideas, close your eyes and count on your fingers and take 10 breaths without thinking at all about that stuff. Ten breaths where your attention is completely on the breath. You don't even have to count because you're using your fingers. Ten breaths, and then Cliff starts. So Sylvia mentioned what I think is the best single test I've ever heard to know if this stuff is working. Can I love in this moment? I want that to be the, the arc in the sky that holds the talk I'm going to give. Because there's a strong interest in the world to demonstrate empirically the benefits of these practices. But when I was moved to engage uh, with meditation, there wasn't a lot of data. But there was very strong, immediate, experiential data, which I would argue each one of us in this room 
has without question. So there's an inherent paradox setting up a life of effortful, striving activity to demonstrate empirically the validity of practices that you know deeply empiric- experientially are of benefit, right? But it's sort of like one of these, because it's there, because that's your nature. It's what I do, you know? I do a Vipassana-informed, ridiculous experiment lifting your finger 10,000 times. Why not do a ridiculous experiment looking at the effects of contemplative practice. So I'm going to spend the next while, and it's going to be a while, so we're going to take a break in the middle, talking to you about a project that I've been engaged with over the last, well, since 1992, 1990, um, investigating the question, you know, what are the effects of contemplative practices. And in particular, a project for the last seven years that's been at the center of my scientific work um, called the Shamata Project in collaboration with Alan Wallace and many scientists who I will talk to you about. So this original artwork uh, sort of captures what we'll be talking about. That's a nice idealized conception of me over here. (laughs) Nice, uh, smaller physique. So here's the outline. We're going to talk about motivating questions, a bit of history, what our project design was, example data from self-report, psychobiological markers, attention experiments, measuring some brain activity, emotion experiments, and some qualitative data. And then I'll speak about some outstanding issues. Because if we start thinking about what are the complexities of studying contemplative practices, well, it's easy to see how there are many factors that contribute to someone's experience. So there are two large questions that sort of are hanging out there in the idea sphere. What do people do when they meditate? You guys have an answer? Is it the same answer time one to time two? I often liken this is sort of like, well, what do people do when they play the cello if the cello had no strings? You can't tell. You wouldn't be playing the cello. So if we were going to measure what people do when they meditate, it's very challenging. Because there are so many techniques. There's individual differences in implementing any given set of instructions. There's developmental trajectories, prior histories, circumstances, what side of the bed you got up on that day, the sitting you just finished. So it's very difficult to answer this question, and we do not have the tools to have people tell us the variability in their own experience sitting to sitting. So when we report in scientific literature, studies 
that occurred during meditation or as a function of meditation, we don't say what people did. We say what the instructions were because we actually don't have the data on what people do. But there's another question. What do people do differently because they have meditated? This is the question that seems most meaningful to me to ask. This is the question that gives rise to potentially the test that you spoke of, can I love better in any moment? This is also the question that is amenable to experiment, because if as a scientist we have a task where we know the performance on that task in a population that may be tested before contemplative training, we can then see how the training affects their performance on a given task. So we call these trait effects. But of course, these questions are recursive. They feed into each other. I'm going to emphasize work related to the second question in my talk today. Here are some central characters in my story so far. Can you tell which one is talking right now? The one on the left. You know who the guy on the right is? Richie Davids. <laughs> You're cheating. You knew him back then. <laughs> Yes, this is Richie Davidson, and these are, uh, this was taken in 1977. Sort of, don't know if we would have made it through the airport these days. <laughs> in 1990, Richie was going to go to the third Mind and Life conference in Dharamsala and present our work on uh, emotion and uh, the brain, and he couldn't go. So he asked me to go. And three weeks later, I found myself in Dharamsala rooming with this fellow. This is Francisco Varela. And he's no longer with us about 10 years. But everybody I know who knew him has a, has a flame. Whether it's a butter lamp, I can't tell you, but it's, it's a flame. And one night at two in the morning, he sort of said, we're two old EEGers. We should do something. And that's where this fellow comes in, Alan Wallace, who speaks Tibetan with a Lhasa accent <laughs> and had been a monk for 14 years and actually had in his mind, brewing before we met him for years, the idea that basic shamatha practice, focusing the mind, would be amenable, particularly within the Tibetan tradition versus tantric practices, to scientific study. Because, you know, one of the things that we do is we study attention. So maybe a practice devoted to cultivating stable, focused attention could result in trait changes on attentional tasks. Made sense. And he had access to practitioners. So here we are. 
in the foothills of the Himalayas, the Duladar Mountains, above Dharamsala, which is a lot more built up now, in 1990. And we decided in 1992, through the funding of the Fetzer Institute, to mount, which actually Charlie Halpern, who's here, was instrumental. Somebody I met, he and Susan there, and Susan somewhere here. We met on that fateful 1990 trip, so this is memory lane. So in 1992, we brought a few things that were state-of-the-art. Here's a canister of film, a fax machine. Here is a radio telephone that drug runners use so they could communicate. Now, of course, you can, everybody has a cell phone. This is a room in Kashmir Cottage where we were staying. This used to be the Dalai Lama's mother's home. It's run as a bed and breakfast by his younger brother. Here is uh, Francisco and Alan and uh, colleague Greg Simpson, who used to be at UCSF. And we're, here's Joan Halifax and uh, before in robes, and here's uh, Jimpa uh, before not in robes. Uh, and we're doing a sort of demonstration uh, of recording EEG uh, for His Holiness. And uh, why is everybody laughing? Because he is uh, saying, how do you calibrate the horizontal time axis so you can know the frequency of the brain waves? It's a very Buddhist saying. <laughs> but really, we were there to investigate the effects of advanced Tibetan mental training on measures that we might be able to use from the nascent tools of cognitive neuroscience. Genlam Rinpoche, one of Alan's shamatha teachers, said, oh, don't ask the monks to come to you. We had brought all that stuff to set up a laboratory. And he said, oh, don't ask them to come down from the mountain. You go to them. So it was not so easy to bring a thousand pounds of stuff on these goat trails. So we took what we could on our backs and had some extraordinary visits with monks in retreat. So here is a local flora and fauna. And in a hut such as this, we encountered a man such as this. Most of the monks, we said, we want to study what goes on when you meditate. What is the effect of this training on your mind? And they said, what do you want to do that for? <laughs> First off, the mind is sort of odorless, colorless. It's the space in which phenomena appear. How are you going to study that? Second, if you want to know what goes on when you meditate, Meditate. <laughs> and third, I don't know anything, so why are you talking to me? Then we eventually said, well, do you think you can keep your mind on an object for like two seconds? They said, what? That's trivial. Oh yeah, well, nobody in the West can do it. <laughs> but this fellow is different. He had suffered greatly. He was a beautiful boy and had been whacked on the head as a child when his skull was still soft. And he therefore had a flattening on the back of his head. In Tibetan folk culture, that is a sign of a very evil past life. He was shunned. 
Then he was tortured by the Chinese and beat. And this is a hearing aid. His eyes are not right. But he had a kind of, you were talking about no one is there. He was like speaking to a master craftsman who wanted to show us the tools in his carefully felt-lined toolbox of the different things he uses. If his mind is turbulent, if he is despairing, if he is overexcited, if he is sleepy, he just spoke completely matter-of-fact about the way he works with his mind. He was the only monk who would just do that. So I show his picture because of many feelings in me about the rarity of his spirit and the clarity of his mind and the pedestrian nature of the most ardent efforts that we can make. And sometimes I like my sentences. So here is a senior monk doing a Posner covert orienting attention task. On, it's another Buddhist activity. And actually it's really interesting because this is a task where you get a target, it's, it's going to be a center uh, screen, is either going to be an arrow pointing this way or that, and then you're going to get a stimulus to the right or left. The arrow should point to the stimulus most of the time. Undergraduates do not object when 10% of the time the arrow points opposite to where the target happens. If you keep your eyes in the center but the arrow appears, over, uh, it causes one of these transiently prepared mind states so that you will respond to a target more quickly if the arrow pointed to the target than if the arrow doesn't. Of course, he said, why did you lie to me? Here, we're actually uh, recording facial expressions. Um, Paul Ekman, who is the man on uh, facial expression, was here earlier in the day. I think he may have gone for the afternoon. Uh, his work inspired this kind of experiment. We show a film uh, on that uh, small LCD screen of uh, the Chinese uh, beating Tibetan monks in the 87 uprising, which was recent at that time, versus images of the Dalai Lama, and tried to see whether we have spontaneous evocation of different affective states in community Tibetans versus practitioners. The cross-cultural realities of this romantic project are quite strong. These monks are laughing at the Institute of Buddhist Dialectics. Here's Richie, here's Francisco. Why are they laughing? Here is the mind, and we have mistakenly put a cap on the head. You can read about that in uh, this chapter in Visions of Compassion. Finally, we had an uh, encounter with this monk who gave a uh, t teaching about the nature of compassion which has uh, forever changed us. And I actually recently digitized some 20-year-old cassettes, so I have the MP3 files, so it's not just my memory. We asked him, what's the difference between sadness and compassion? 
And he said sadness can catalyze the arising of compassion, but they're fundamentally different mind streams. And for compassion to arise, there has to be as much love for the conditions of suffering as a mother has for her child. Because if you don't have that openness to the condition of suffering, you cannot arise with the maximal beneficial solution given your capacity and your perception of the causes and conditions of the present moment. You cannot defend against. You can, the near enemy is pathos, even though the word means come, pathos. But, you know, maybe these guys were always extraordinary, and that's why they're up on the mountain. It's not that the training changed them. It's that they took up the training because they were already extraordinary. So we need to do a longitudinal study. And cross-culturally, it's really complicated to use materials that were normed in the West. We have positive pictures of some guy hanging out, some Sierra Club pictures of a, a guy having a nice time in the sun. A monk said, oh, it must be so hot. <laughs> we have a cute rabbit that everybody goes, oh, he's, where is its mother? <laughs> we had a picture of a starving girl from, at that time, Biafra was a real crisis. He said, is this paper mache? Is this real? So, 20 years later, hello. Well, that's why we have a mouse. Oh, it worked? It did it. Okay. This present study. No, we don't want to do that. I had it. It's my previous life. Yeah. All right, what are our aims? Can attention be trained through focused meditation practice? Can training in loving-kindness, compassion, and other beneficial aspirations support attention and improve emotion regulation? Are improvements related to psychological function? Here's a small goal. What are the subjective behavioral, neural, and physiological correlates of such training? <laughs> Easy peasy. So at UC Davis, Alan came to us and said, you know, let's do this. We talked about it in India 15 years ago. Now's the time. I got my PhD. You got your PhD. Wonder of wonders. <laughs> so on the right are postdocs, graduate students, full-time research workers. On the left, faculty. Alan is in red. He was a collaborator in many dimensions simultaneously. Because the idea here uh, is to uh, set up these two retreats, and I'll tell you the design in a minute. We enlisted an entire village of collaborating scientists, 
I'd be here all day and night to tell you about all of their capacities and domains. And this is a very expensive long-term project. Deeply grateful for the Fetzer Institute, the Hershey Family Foundation, and I'm particularly grateful for the last funder on the list, without whom none of this would ever be possible. So what are we doing? We're going to look at three months of full-time retreat experience. We're going to use a comparison group of similar meditators who will later do a second three-month retreat. The emphasis is on trait changes, the second question I've talked to you about. We're going to test the retreat and control groups in the same way. Because if you're going to do a three-month retreat, you're not on the beaten path of society. So if we're going to have a control group, they can't just be anyone. They need to be folks who also want to do a three-month retreat. They're just not doing one right now. And we follow up at 5.16 and we're gearing up for 60 months post-retreat. How do you do this? Well, you advertise in Bodhidharma and Tricycle, a nice ad with a quote from His Holiness, Meditate to Advance Science. We got 142 applicants from around the world willing to be randomly assigned to one of two three-month retreats. We called that down to 60 people who were mentally and physically healthy enough, and we created, with enough meditation experience, we created two matched groups. They are matched on all these aspects at the group level. We even, before they knew whether they were in the first or the second retreat, we shipped laptops to everyone in their home with an instruction manual that let them turn their closet, their kitchen, their bedroom into a cognitive science laboratory using the same software we use in the laboratories so we could get their perceptual thresholds and their sustained attention performance without the biased effect of them knowing which retreat they're going to be in. Because you know, on April 14th, it used to be, now it's a little earlier, you don't know what college you're in. Once you find out what college you're in, <laughs> suddenly you're going X, Y, and Z, and you're different, even though you, nothing has changed. So we randomly assigned 30 to the first retreat, 30 to the second retreat. This happened five years ago. Just sort of, just ended five years ago, for the first retreat. We flew the control group from wherever they were living in Europe and all over the United States, Canada, Mexico, to the retreat center four to five days before they were tested. So they were in the same altitude, same living conditions, eating the same food, tested in the same way by the same people as the retreat group. So this means the control group functions to be comparison group with the first retreat and as a significant baseline for themselves when they later go into retreat. We had very committed participants across a broad age range, 97% retention. One person had catastrophic illness in their family was a control and didn't come to the retreat. Everybody else came. All the controls made all three six-day trips to be tested. 
on to the Shambhala Mountain Center. Maybe some of you have been there in Red Feather Lakes, Colorado, where we found facilities to do this. So this is not a typical place to go meditate. So this is one of the environments. And if we talk about thinking in and outside the box, there's a little variable going on. What happens when you meditate in a stupa? There's not a large literature on this. Most of the time, people were in this newly created meditation lodge that we were able to essentially rent for six months. Down here is a meditation hall. Here, Alan, like the rest of us, now gray, is teaching in the second retreat. Downstairs, behind these doors, we build two soundproof, side-by-side, university-grade EEG psychophysiology laboratories. This is the beginning of that. We brought a few things from Davis. You don't want to know our FedEx bill. And we built, I know this looks like some strange New York dungeon, but it's not. This was the subject room, and we had an unobtrusive video camera. Isn't that funny? If you put this speaker up here, it's unobtrusive. But this allows us now to get facial expression data when people are watching what's ever on this screen. And so here we are. And most of the time, when people were not engaging in experimental tasks, they saw this. In this talk, we will also see this from time to time. Rest without engaging in any particular type of directed mental activity. Because you know if you're meditating and you go to the laboratory and you're sitting there and somebody says, okay, just rest. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to meditate. Of course, then, given your experience across time, if you get this sentence, what are you going to do? Meditate. <laughs> but it's a little different. This was a very meaningful instruction, and we received mugs from the participants at the end of the retreat with this emblazoned on the side. <laughs> so here is someone uh, hooked up, uh, ready to uh, do one of the experiments. Here is the laboratory. We had 88 channels of EEG. We could see what they see. We have their video monitor, recording, pan tilt, all kinds of snazzy stuff. We have two of those going morning, noon, and night, side by side, um, to do, we, ultimately the experiment consisted of 600 four-hour physiological recording sessions. We built a blood lab, went through about 5,000 pounds of dry ice, had a connection with the uh, air gas guy at King Supers, the local Colorado supermarket. And uh, then we tore it all apart. This is my 2001 monolith picture. So what is Alan teaching? Why go to all this trouble? Well, two complementary practices which you're all pretty familiar with. Focusing the mind and opening the heart. So in terms of contemplative practice, 
This was organized where people would come together twice a day in group sitting and the rest of the time you're sort of on your own schedule. And about six hours a day you're doing shamatha practices, either mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind in its natural state, which Sylvia has already talked about a bit today, or finding within the realm of mental phenomena the invariance of awareness and focusing on that. And the Brahma-viharas, the four immeasurables, loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. So what do we expect? Well, the first cut, if you're going to focus your mind, you should be able to focus better. Increased access to your experience. So while I said in the earlier talk that an enormous amount is non-conscious, I didn't say there are not flexibility to what you can be aware of. You can increase your noting of your experience. Not necessarily noting in the verbal sense, but simply entering more nuances of moment-to-moment aspects of the construction of reality by your body-mind embedded in an environment. It's a simple way of saying you. Faster recovery from provocation. Diminution of destructive tendencies. How might we study these? took a long time to get money to do this project. So we had many 8, 10, 12-hour meetings with Alan Wallace and our research team. What are all the domains of life that we might measure that could be impacted by three months of meditation experience? And it's sort of everything. So we tried to do a project that was not just a kitchen sink approach, I call it the showroom of kitchen sink approach. (laughs) Yes, we are going to look at what goes on physiologically when you meditate. That's a small portion of things. We give you daily questionnaires. We give you a battery of tools from social psychology, pre-post questionnaires. Conduct qualitative structured interviews, which we can transcribe and code. I'll talk a little bit about that. And then we had 15 computer-based laboratory tasks, emotion-related attention-emotion interaction tasks, and attention tasks. We're going to look at startling uh, from loud sounds during looking at emotional pictures. We're going to look at self-report data, thematic analysis of these interviews, facial expression in response to emotional provocation, behavioral measures such as reaction time and accuracy of cognitive tests, whole panel of biomarkers, autonomic psychophysiology, heart rate, skin conductance, respiration, pulse transit time, and 88 channels of EEG. In terms of our psychobiomarkers, We have a whole panel from telomerase, colleagues at UCSF I'll be talking about, cortisol, DHEA, which is a a stress-related androgen, Uh, cytokines, pro-inflammatory chemicals that cause the maintenance of inflammation that are not so good for you over time, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is related to neuroplasticity, and the affiliative hormones oxytocin and vasopressin. So let's talk about some findings. 
daily mood state questionnaires. Boy, were people sick of these after 90 days. You know? Talk about tuning your cello. They have a one to seven scale on amusement or contentment. Well, you know, the finer and more quiet you get. Is it a 6.27 content? And when are you asking me? What do you mean all day, average? You should ask me every moment. They didn't understand we actually do a factor analysis and these are positive and negative. You know, these are actually not as differentiated as the words. The words are on constructs that they don't see. But what you can see is that the retreat group slowly increases in a factor called well-being that consists of these terms. And the control group, which is doing this every day at home and then coming in and sort of, this dip is probably when they came in for their testing. And then up and down is the end, because here this is a sort of see you in September. But when the control group becomes their own retreat group, they replicate the slow increase. So you know, if you find it, what is it? Uh, one, uh, one animal is uh, in primate, non-human primate research. Uh, one monkey is an anecdote. Two is truth. <laughs> so this replication is actually really pretty compelling. To measure psychological improvements with all of these different questionnaires, we combined many traits into a measure of adaptive functioning. And that consisted of increases in all of these constructs, well-being, mindfulness, empathy, resilience. So the resilience is a great construct. Ego resilience is being as under-controlled as possible, as over-controlled as necessary. Sort of like skiing. And decreases in depression and anxiety and these negative aspects. And when you do this, if we put the groups together, the control group doesn't budge. But the retreat group significantly increases in this adaptive functioning construct, and five months after the retreat stays significantly higher than at the beginning. When the controls are tested in their retreat, they show the exact same pattern, another replication. So now, people have a lot of time on their hands. Questionnaires, as much as social psychologists want to rid them of uh, being able to psych out the meaning of the questionnaires, if, you go to, if you're a practitioner and you look at a mindfulness questionnaire, it's not rocket science to figure out what the questionnaire is pulling for. In fact, it's been empirically demonstrated that the interpretation of items on mindfulness questionnaires differ as a function of mindfulness training. So mindfulness results are affected by what you understand from the practice, not just the fact that you became more mindful. That would be a very large digression and a whole other talk about how do you measure this stuff. But one thing you can do is you can look at psychological change related to biological change. So here are pictures of chromosomes, these telomeres. At the end, 
This is in collaboration with Liz Blackburn and Alyssa Eppel and Zhu Lin at UCSF. Liz won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of telomeres, the sequences at the ends of your chromosomes that the DNA replication complex binds to, and telomerase, the enzyme that repairs the shortening of telomeres. Because telomeres are the place where the replication complex binds, but it isn't, they don't get replicated at the very end. So every time your cells divide, your telomeres get a tiny bit shorter. And this shortening of telomeres actually is related to your, long, your lifespan. This is non-trivial. However, we have a special enzyme that can lengthen the telomere called telomerase. Telomeres change slowly. Telomerase is labile. So Owen Walkowitz at UCSF said, you should measure telomerase. And I said, are you kidding? Thought he was completely crazy. Well, at the end of the retreat, the retreat group has 30% more telomerase than the control group. But does telomerase level relate to individual differences in psychological change? So here's a kind of psychological model I'll sort of introduce, I was a neuroscientist earlier, now I'm a psychologist, or whatever. You have meditative practices cause, through some unknown mechanism, psychological change in a construct, let's say we'll call it mindfulness, not that we can measure that, and a sense of purpose in life. And purpose in life is one of the constructs in Carol Riff's well-being questionnaire, and it has to do with the degree to which your current activities are in line with your future goals and your past experiences. If you're sort of at loose ends and you're in transition and you don't know where you're going, you have a lower purpose in life than if you're sort of building towards something for a long period of time. Increases, we are supposing, in mindfulness and purpose in life, improve stress resilience, and improve perceived control so that you can deal with the conditions of your life, even the stresses that are unpleasant. Because you were talking about the Buddhist teaching of the ability to hold the conditions of our life without undue distress, including things that are not pleasant. So this would be perceived control. If you don't, if circumstances if your well-being is only contingent upon circumstances, then you have very little sense of environmental control, perceived control. Stress vulnerability relates to neuroticism, which is in fact, in this case, irritability, making mountains out of molehills, failure of a certain kind of perspective. So improvements in these constructs should increase telomerase and lower stress vulnerability. So what we find, and this is uh, led by Tanya Jacobs, who is a postdoc in the project and published in Psychoneuroimmunology, a nice small named journal. The control group shows no relationship in the amount of telomerase at the end of the retreat and their change in purpose in life. This is perceived control, rather. The retreat group, as we go this way, increased change in perceived control is associated with higher levels of telomerase. 
Here it's even more striking. In the control group, no relationship between telomerase and change in purpose in life. Purpose in life highly related to the amount of telomerase in the retreat group. Of course, this also means these guys may have meditated for 900 hours, but their purpose of life sense has gone down. This is change from the beginning of the retreat to the end in purpose in life from Carol Riff's well-being questionnaire related to the amount of telomerase at the end of the retreat. I wish I could show you change in telomerase for change in psychology, but if we tried to get recording, collecting telomerase at the beginning, it would have broken our back. So we only have it at the end of the retreat. It's kind of like reading to children every night, how much were they read to, and then testing their you know, reading comprehension at the end. So do you, does that answer your question? Yeah. In terms of cortisol, there was no change in cortisol, the stress hormone taken in the afternoon at the end of the retreat compared to the beginning. But interestingly, and this is in press in health psychology as of like three days ago, if you separate the retreatants as a function of those who on these aspects of the five-factor mindfulness questionnaire change, the group that changed the most had, actually this is the group that changed the least, has the highest cortisol, the group that improved in this construct measure of mindfulness the most, they have the lowest cortisol. So these are significantly different, but if you just simply put the population together, there's no difference pre to post. So somewhere along the line, the end of the retreat is often associated, those of you who've done long retreats, know that there's actually a sadness. There's a difficulty of leaving what has built, the community, the sangha. You're going back to whatever was unresolved in your life. You're leading, leaving the preciousness of this place or wherever you are. It can be stressful to end a retreat. Yes, you have a question. You're trying to synthesize this. No, that was you. I'm, no, okay. Yeah, you. Oh, okay. Didn't know if you had another one. You know, I talk about changes in attention and perception. If you're going to measure a three-month sustained attention training, you need to have a pretty good test of sustained attention. So here's the test. <coughs> Stare at a dot, then you're going to get a line. Line's actually only on for about a tenth of a second. Get the dot again. Sometimes the line is going to be short. That line looks short. But we make it real hard. We take 15 minutes to make the short line longer and longer and longer till you can't tell if it's a long line or a short line. And then we back it off just a tad till 75% of the time you know it's a long line or it's a short line. 25% of the time you absolutely can't tell. That's your perceptual threshold. We lock it in at that level of difficulty and then we start. 
90% of the time, it's a long line. 10% of the time, it's a short line you can barely see that's short. For 32 minutes without interruption, you have to either push a button whenever it's a short line. Target detection. Be vigilant for the short line. Or response inhibition. Press, press, press 90% of the time you're pressing when it's a long line. Withhold when it's a short line. Is that boring enough? What's the frequency? Once every one to two seconds. It's, the average is actually once every two seconds, so it's between one and three seconds, 90% of the time. It's a, not a target. So if you're going to do the response inhibition, you're going to do about 960 button presses, about 96 withholds. So what do we see? We see that, in fact, this is data from the second retreat. This was published in Psychological Science. The vigilance decrement when you're not in training, falls off. This is the first 16 minutes of the task. You know, it's a classic thing since the Second World War and we needed to know about radar operators. How long can you do a boring thing without beginning to show impairment? You know, when you go to the airport, there are random images of guns and bombs that get thrown up to the testers just so that they'd have something to detect. Because if everybody has just got, you know, underwear and whatever their trousers and their suitcases, it's pretty boring and they lose vigilance. After the retreat, by the midpoint and by the end, this vigilance decrement has flattened out. They can maintain perceiving the target. This is press the button whenever it's a short line. But this is due not to improved attention. It's due to improved perception. Their visual thresholds actually changed. Just like you could tell differences in the frequency after the retreat for tuning, they could see more fine visual detail, which meant the task, which was set at how they were when they started the retreat, got easier. And, you know, you can have attention all over the place. If you get an easier thing to see, you'll like, it'll pop out. So, in fact, this is the significant improvement in the visual angle at the midpoint. The groups are matched at the beginning. This is testing at a slightly higher level. And this lower value is a lower visual angle of the difference between long and short. And, in fact, it holds five months at follow-up because we shipped those laptops back to people and had them redo their perceptual thresholds at home five months after the retreat. The second, the control group, shows the same effect, replicates. But the five-month data, this follow-up data, only holds as long as you still keep up a daily sitting practice. You don't have to do it nine hours a day. But if you stop meditating, the threshold doesn't stay down. How long were they meditating? At home? 
Yeah, it's their daily practice, anywhere, you know, half an hour to an hour and a half. We also looked at brain responses to the difference, these very small visual differences. And at the end, this, this is not a very interesting looking graph. What it's telling you is the difference between targets and non-targets about 200 milliseconds after, two-tenths of a second after the line shows up. There is no significant difference between a target and a non-target at the beginning of the retreat. At the end of the retreat, a non-target makes less of a brain response and a target makes more. They have become neurophysiologically more selective. Also, if you look at brain activity before the stimulus happens, this alpha wave activity, alpha is an indirect reflect index of cortical activity. Attention areas in the superior parietal region <coughs> are more activated when this alpha goes down. That's our interpretation. There's a significant decrease in this posterior alpha after trading that goes along with their attention system is more engaged during the task. That's preliminary data. We're looking at that in much more detail. If we flip things around and we say now respond to every non-target, withhold to every target, now we have a response inhibition task. Response inhibition is really important. You feel anger in response to a situation. You're going to say words that could be hurtful. You need a careful monitoring to be able to be skillful in handling the feelings that come up. There's an awful lot about response inhibition that is tied to engaging in meditative practice. One could argue that just agreeing to sit still till the gong goes is a fundamental inhibition, training in response inhibition. So now, this is combined across retreats. This is a paper in Emotion, uh, led by Baljinder Sadra and Catherine McLean. Before the retreat, decreased ability to keep withholding responses. By the midpoint, improvements which flatten out. So there's this great improvement in the ability across this half hour to sustain inhibiting your responses. What's really cool, this is not related to your changes in perceptual threshold. This is related to changes in what we call controlled processing or executive control. Doesn't matter that your vision got better or not. But what is really cool is that to the degree someone improves on response inhibition, it predicts their subsequent improvement in adaptive functioning on all those psychological terms. There is a relationship between this boring, low-level task, can I withhold my hand? and someone's ego resilience and well-being. Better you are in the change in 
executive control, the better your adaptive psychological functioning. Yes? Why is predictive rather than correlated? Well, predictive because we look at a change from pre to mid in the response inhibition, predicting subsequent pre to post change in adaptive functioning. We do that through this um, by... <laughs> I just clears it up. Clear as mud, okay? So there is, it is a very sophisticated correlation. It is not a statement of causation. So it is a predictive because of time series, but not mechanism. But you can, it's tantalizing. And um, I'm glad that uh, you all could explain this to me. <laughs> these are statistical techniques of bivariate latent different score model. These are techniques that have only come online in the last five or six years in psychology. And luckily, one of our graduate students who had been a Theravadan monk for several years with Tanisaru Bhikkhu also happens to now be a fourth-year graduate student in quantitative psychology. <laughs> So, this would be a fine time to stop, because I'm like halfway through, or a little more, and do another, you either can ask questions, or you can talk amongst yourselves. How should we do it? Questions? Any questions? Bathroom is a question. Yes? Did you factor out that if you had taken a group of people, non-meditators, on the retreat as a separate control and not taught them any meditation, they weren't meditators, but they had the opportunity to leave their lifestyle and their you know, responsibilities for three months and test them in the same way, might you have observed changes also, to, which would not be related to meditation, but more related to the fact that they were able to leave the stress of... Absolutely excellent question. This is the classic vacation question. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm worried about is half of the people are going to miss this absolutely important answer. So I would like to suggest that for the next five minutes, everybody go in their groups, talk, 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 until everybody has done this going out and coming back that needs to happen. And then we resume with the answer to that question. How about that? No problem. There you go. Ready, set, go. I will repeat the question. Other. Same group, new group. Same group, new group. Hello, Same group. Same group. Oh, what are the next <laughs> 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 Nice to see you. You look beautiful. Well, thank hey, you. Hey, you look beautiful, too. Oh, yeah. thank you. <laughs> 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 I was sitting in the back for a bit. Oh, I heard this. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.